Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. We're doing a series of interviews regarding climate change and mental health, and we're doing it in collaboration with the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. We're going to do something a little different. Usually we speak to one guest about one topic. This is going to be four people, including myself, talking about how we as people who have worked in mental health for our entire lives shifted or evolved or morphed into people who had a real interest in climate change and the effect that climate change has on our mental health. I hope you enjoy it. Carissa Caban Aliman is a psychiatrist. Give us your story, please. It wasn't an epiphany moment. Doing this work is the same as addressing any other social determinant of mental health, a social justice issue in the sense that I started to realize back in, I would say, 2015 to 2016, that climate change was just increasing in terms of how much it's impacting humans across the world. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. We are pretty aware of what's going on because we're already facing a lot of the issues of climate change, such as the increased frequency of hurricanes, sea level rise, etc. From there, seeing everything that has happened in different municipalities has made me very aware. And then I moved to Florida. I see that obviously this is ground zero for sea level rise. And unfortunately, it's disproportionately affecting communities that are already systemically oppressed by issues such as poverty, social inequity, racism, and so forth. So when I started doing some work with cultural humility, with addressing the social determinants of health, persons experiencing homelessness, and I see that when you don't have a pure roof over your head and you're dealing with all of these issues like voter suppression, et cetera, et cetera, you are much more prone to be affected by the, the climate change. I figured that it would be important for me to get involved in whatever was happening, which wasn't really much a couple of years ago. I've always been involved with the American Psychiatric Association, and luckily, a group of people that are members started to do work to educate our profession about what's going on. I was part of forming the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. My main mentor for this process was Dr. David Pollack, who spoke about how climate change is a social determinant of health. I joined their effort and we started meeting and doing some conferences at the annual meetings at, and the Institute of Psychiatric Services meeting. And we formed this effort and we're focused on education and advocacy. Then Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico in 2017. <laughs> and I saw how this is definitely increasing to a level where it's not going to be just exclusively affecting people that are poor, but also everybody. I couldn't reach my dad for two weeks because he lived in a rural area and he didn't have any signal. He couldn't get out of the house. For a really long time. How people that are already affected by other issues, like I mentioned, like social food insecurity, were left without access to food and started having to fend from themselves and using ancestral agroecology principles to really get access to, to food and prepare for a future possibility of another crisis like the one they faced in the hurricane. I started working with a couple of Puerto Rican psychiatrists and founded another organization, Create with Help for Crear Consult Inc. Basically, they educated ourselves for the last couple of years to help community leaders that are have really been the ones that have acquired the reins of the recovery process because the government hasn't been responsive enough. Basically, we have helped them to try to recover emotionally, and we've seen all of the struggles that they're going through. So that's my inspiration to keep going, to support those people that are doing that work, my family and my friends and everybody, because everybody's eventually going to be affected by this. Are you finding greater acceptance of that position? Yes, there's been a big shift in the last, I would say, one to two years as more disasters and all reports more visible in the media. 
the medical profession and psychiatry is becoming more aware of it and also more visibility around the research, but it's much more solid now. I had another case the other day of a person with undergoing a situation with their air conditioner for a couple of weeks and going into a panic mode because of the consequence of how the extreme heat was affecting this person. So we're seeing it more and the profession is finally coming to that realization that this is also an issue that we, we have to help people address. We have to help ourselves address in terms of making a change. The other reasons are very political for me. In high school, I started to realize how supermarkets are full of food and a lot of it goes to waste while people are going hungry and how this excessive drive for us to think that we got to be happy by consuming and processing is directly related to a lot of the mental illness that we treat. It's literally making our patients sick and it is driving climate change. It is an ethical issue as well. We got to start realizing that excessive consumerism is, is what's driving this and that it's going to drive our planet to die if we don't really take care of it, or at least we, we won't be able to survive in it. It's also what makes us mentally ill, the psychosocial aspect of mental health. That's my personal opinion, and I don't have any problem sharing that. Lisa Van Susteren is a psychiatrist, and she has spent a great deal of time working with climate-related issues. Lisa, thank you for joining us, and tell us your story, please. My story, at least with respect to climate. I ran for the U.S. Senate, though I did not prevail in the end. I knew during the course of that run that something deeper was happening to me. At one particular event, a documentary was shown called Cradle to Cradle, The Next Industrial Revolution. It was a documentary done by a guy named Bill McDonough, an environmental visionary, and a German chemist, Michael Baumgartner, all about how we can build a sustainable economy just by being smart and using the bounty, complexity, intricacy of nature so that we can work with a planet with limited resources. I was convinced that this was going to be the next part of my life. Sure enough, shortly after Al Gore announced that he was looking for 50 initial participants to train for An Inconvenient Truth, I went down to Nashville and I've never looked back. I came across the fact that there's something that was then referred to as the spirituality center in the brain. What it triggered in me is the realization that religion, really, and religious fervor or spiritual fervor might be what was needed in order to make the changes, the rapid changes that we need in order to survive. With a couple of climate activists, we started a group called the Interfaith Moral Action on Climate, IMAC. IMAC was really a wonderful gathering spot. We had every single sector in religion. We would gather in front of the White House, you know, a couple times getting arrested. One event, we'd burn incense. We had a very robust group. I enjoyed the fact that I didn't have a position in religion, so I was kind of given more of an open door. People would accept me because I didn't have any agenda. I also realized that my own tribe, which is mental health professionals, were still AWOL on this topic, curiously. I got to credit Kevin Coyle, who was vice president of education at National Wildlife Federation, where I was on the board. Kevin said we should have a conference to talk about the mental health impacts of climate. I remember thinking, oh God, nobody's going to listen. But th that's a bad attitude. I went to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where I had given a talk on the health impacts of climate, and their vice president gave me $50,000 right off the bat to run the conference. In 2009, we had the first 
that I know of, conference on global warming, the mental health impacts, and why the mental health care system is not prepared. I got to tell you, I reached out to the American Psychiatric. This is 2009. They told me they were too busy. They had other stuff going on. Then I said, well, then get the staff. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe you'll be interested when you have to use scuba diving equipment to get to your first floor office. And they said the staff wasn't interested. I've woven my way through the thicket ever since. It has been a slog in those early years when people just didn't make the connection. Now things are happening quickly, a frantic need to catch up. People are scared, apprehensive about the future. We know that kids, some in despair, some are outraged, some are just terrified. Here's the message. While nobody can do everything, everybody can do something. It's our collective voices that matter. And frankly, I've really seen in politics that when the people lead, the leaders will follow. If we make sure that we do all that we can in our personal lives, professionally with our colleagues or wherever we work, the excitement and the beauty of working collectively. One of the things that is different is that we now no longer have downtime. We are breaking all the rules of the way that we were designed, what stirs a special emotion in us, that when we work with others, we forget about ourselves. And there's a feeling of connecting almost with the sublime. And that spirituality center does get activated. I've seen that. And there's a feeling of awe that together we can make the changes that will preserve and restore the planet and our health. The interconnectedness, of course, is the key to our relationship with nature. We don't have to change the hearts and minds of every person on the planet. It is well known that if you convince the thought leaders, you get those critical leaders, and you reach a social, cultural tipping point that creates the nodes of influence that lead to social change. And that is a certain herd mentality. We don't want to be left behind. So if everybody else is doing something, we will follow suit. And that's what can create the rapid change that is absolutely critical. How exciting it can be to think of the solutions. I want to go to that place that gives me hope, courage, and resilience. Adrian Tate works in England, and he has been involved with climate change issues for a number of years. Please tell us about how you became involved in this topic. When you approached me, you used the word epiphany, and this really got me thinking. It's a word that wasn't altogether familiar with me because it has strong religious connotations in my mind. But then I realized that it has great power psychologically. It's a word that is is relevant, I think, to the story I would like to tell you briefly. For me, what that word evokes is the emergence or breaking through of something which may have been going on beneath the surface for a long time and is triggered by something internal or something external or an interplay of both. And that was certainly the case for me. Years of therapy helped me to understand that my early life was a strange mixture of love and stimulation on the one hand and a disturbed, fearful, confusing family atmosphere on the other. The resulting developmental difficulties were for me compounded by the fact that I was born into a privileged background. And in England, that often meant being sent at a very early age to boarding school, where we were encouraged to see ourselves as privileged and entitled. But in a sense, it was the opposite of privileged because there was a separation from loving peers and family, quite a lot of corporal punishment, quite a 
a lot of bullying and an absence of uh, loving parental figures around. So nature for me was a consolation, a source of great excitement. The England of the 1950s and 60s still had a lot of very unspoiled countryside. And a great blessing for me was that both the boarding schools I went to were situated in beautiful countryside where I could go out and experience the, the vibrancy of nature. And that later on wove in with something that I learned from my parents. It was to do with Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which was the beginning of an opening of my eyes to the fact that the natural world, the greater than human world is vulnerable and that we, our species, is doing it harm. That was a little bit of insight and it then got tucked away a bit. My career developed. I went into therapy and came to terms with the formative elements in my background. I, in time, qualified as a therapist myself and that preoccupied me for the best part of a quarter of a century. And then, this is, if there's an epiphany moment, this was it. In 2007, I went to a talk given by eco-psychologist Mary Jane Rust called Climate on the Couch. What hit me between the eyes was that there's a rich and still largely undeveloped interface between death psychology and the disturbing and pressing question of why it is that humankind, how it is that humankind is so capable of acting recklessly towards the greater than human world. I was hugely stimulated by this talk and I was left with a feeling, what am I going to do about this? I was already starting to think in terms of approaching retirement, certainly from full-time practice as, as a psychotherapist. And this just felt clearly and inescapably to me like a signpost to the future. I live in the West Country of England. I made contact with the Centre for Psychosocial Studies at the University of the West of England. We put on a conference, the psychological and political challenge of facing climate change. That led over a period of years to a kind of social entrepreneurial role for myself in starting to help to bring together a network of concerned clinicians, academics and activists that led over a period of years to the formation of the Climate Psychology Alliance. Do you find that your mental health colleagues, or maybe the general population, that they understand what you're doing? They agree with you? Do they think that you're the skeptic? What sort of response have you had to this? And how has that affected you and your continuing to work in this project? The first thing was that I discovered that there were a number of like-minded colleagues out there. The first task was to build something around that like-mindedness. I had the good fortune to discover that there was a, a collectivity of people with similar concerns and interests and wishes ready to do something. But more widely, I have to say that the psychotherapy profession, like most others, I guess, was as slow as any other to see the relevance, the importance of finding an engagement, finding where the connections lie between this existential crisis that's facing us all, and the, if I can put it this way, the somewhat bunkered existence or comfort zones that come with a profession. So I have to say that the more general response that I encountered was that people were reluctant to revisit the, the parameters of their work and to start thinking about how they could engage with this problem that faces us all. Okay, now it's my turn. I want to look back at my own evolution. My father was an industrial engineer, and I recall countless times when they would talk about how to safely dispose waste materials. 
Then a very futuristic high school science teacher, Mr. Williams, I actually remember the name, spoke about how there are only finite quantities of oil and gas, and that the day would come when we would run out of these resources. That changed me from thinking that the world was unlimited to, in fact, how limited it was. The world was not a place for me to exploit, but to respect. And I became frightened about how our needs to enjoy ourselves was becoming greater than the Earth's ability to keep itself functioning. Only a few of my friends would talk to me about this. I was called a tree hugger, but eventually I found other people who had the same concerns. The lifestyles of the last 150 years or so moved us further and further away from being in touch with nature. We were not seeing, or even considering, what our civilization was doing to nature. We were infatuated with our new technologies, and other than when sanitation was considered a public health issue and acted on accordingly, very little was done to understand climate change. We saw phenomenal leaps, however, in medicine's ability to heal and prevent. We could control so many diseases that beforehand had not been controllable. But I also saw how political and other organizations were lying about how they polluted the water, about brownfields, superfunds, the Love Canal, unsafe food additives, pesticides, nuclear waste, and so on. And many people, frankly, told me that I was overreacting. People saw benefits, but I became troubled that with each benefit was also a potential danger. The earth to many people existed to please them as a servant. But to me, the earth existed for both the earth and us to work together for each of our own individual survivals. The earth fed my body with food, water, and air. The earth also fed my soul with beauty and diversity. Both these systems were tied to the earth's climate, which I saw was now under attack. Climate change issues shifted from being a political point because now I saw that it was supporting my life-giving supply chain. I was disappointed with the mental health profession, with its customary concern for improving a sense of physical and psychological safety, yet it did not include the ultimate and universal external variables in our lives, namely climate change, as part of our diagnostic and treatment protocols. That's changing, but not rapidly enough. We have to educate the patient and the doctors without frightening them about these issues to empower them and with patients to do it appropriate to that particular patient in how to change aspects of their lives to make it better in all these domains. So I went from being worried about what I was seeing to now trying to learn how to appropriately bring these concerns into my own and into others' diagnostic and treatment efforts.